Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. With me this week is my wife, Carol. Say hello, Carol. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Good. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. He never has a second cup at home. Of poutine? <laughs> exactly. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Guess who watched Airplane this who did? I did. When did you watch that? <laughs> I watched it while you were working. Oh, geez. I shouldn't work so much because I miss <laughs> out on all the fun. I'll watch it again. That's only the 18th time I've seen it in the last five years. Oh, there you go. On a warm July day in 1986, 11-year-old Allison Perrot was lured from her home by a man on the phone claiming to be a sports photographer. He wanted to take some photos of the young athlete. Two days later, two boys discovered Allison's body in a heavily wooded section of Kings Mill Park. She'd been bound, sexually assaulted, and strangled to death. It would take a decade before science caught up to the point where her killer could be brought to justice. You're listening to episode 161, The Murder of Allison Perrot. We spoke about this case briefly in episode 29 of Dark Poutine when we covered the 1985 as yet unsolved disappearance of eight-year-old Nicole Morin when Allison Parrott went missing and later turned up murdered many Toronto residents wondered if the same perpetrator had been involved in both crimes and I still kind of wonder that yeah poor Allison so had you heard about this one Carol nope no I haven't heard of this one but it sounds like the old typical oh I want you to take your photo situations and heard that it was widely covered here in canada at the time but i think you were living in saudi arabia when that went down allison may campbell parrot was born to leslie and peter parrot on september 28 1974 leslie and peter wanted the best for their kids and provided them a loving home with lots of opportunity leslie wanted her children's names to reflect her own scottish heritage Allison, spelled with one L, has its roots in 12th century Scotland and although now almost exclusively used for girls, has been a unisex name meaning Alice's son or Little Alice. Allison's brother, who came along in the years after Allison, was dubbed Callum, a Scottish Gaelic name meaning dove, a Christian symbol of purity. In an episode of Global TV's Crime Beat, Leslie Perrot remembered Allison. Quote, The first day that Allison was born, I held her in my arms. I still remember this vividly, and I looked at her, and the thought that came to mind was, she's very much her own person. Then she became a big sister, a bit of a bossy big sister, and you know, that's exactly who Allison was. She was very spunky, very determined, filled with life, always laughing, but she was so much her own person. 
I like Allison. I yeah. know a little bit about being a bossy big sister. Yeah. Just a little. I was a bossy big brother too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you agreed to that pretty quickly. <laughs> Allison was a student at the French immersion school Ecole Publique Gabriel Roy at 14 Pembroke Street in Toronto, just off Dundas. By the time she was 11, Allison was well-versed in the use of the public transit system, including buses and the city's subway system. She traveled on her own around the city going to school and to coaching sessions for running, which she had gotten into in the third grade, but had begun to give more focus to in the summer of 1985. Allison, like myself, focused on middle distance running, especially the 800 and 1500 meter races. She also ran the odd 3,000, but improving her times in the shorter races were her current objectives. According to a National Post article by the crime reporter Christy Blatchford, published on March 10, 1999, between January and June of 1986, Allison's hard work and training with her coach, Ms. Moon, had led Allison to drop her time in the 1,500-meter race by a full 40 seconds. Ms. Moon was impressed mentioning later that Allison was the first female star athlete she had coached. Nice. Allison's efforts were winning her accolades as well. They had earned the young, long-legged runner a place in the upcoming international track meet in Plainfield, New Jersey, that was only a week away, scheduled for August 1st, 1986. There, Allison would be one of three representing her age group from 8 to 12 years old. Thanks to qualifying for the international meet, Allison's name had recently been in the Toronto Star. Allison was a friendly, outgoing girl and was seen by many of her peers as a natural leader. She was just an average Canadian kid, going for sleepovers with her girlfriends, giggling about the boys she liked, and she'd just come back from summer camp only days before she vanished and she'd just been to Ontario Place with a pal, too. This was an ordinary summer. What were your summers like when you were 11? Oh, well, I did go to summer camp. Yeah. Um, I was not a star athlete at all. Um, <laughs> but it sounded just like hers. So just going out when I was in Canada doing Canadian things. Summers were weird in Saudi Arabia. We didn't do much outdoors, too much in the summers. But sleepovers, check. Birthdays, check. Giggling about boys, check. Yeah. All the same things. There was one odd thing, though. Eleven days before Allison's death, someone, a man, had called a couple of times asking after Allison. He said he was a photographer who wanted to take photos of her and her running teammates for a sports magazine. The family's housekeeper took the calls, telling the man that Allison was away at camp. What the family did not know at the time is that other people with the same last name, Parrot, had received phone calls from a man with a pleasant voice asking for Allison. When the man was told he had the wrong number, he would apologize and move on to the next number in the phone book. The day before the internet. The man called again at around 11 o'clock on the morning of July 25, 1986. This time, Allison was home and she spoke with him. He reiterated that he was a sports photographer and told the 11-year-old that he had planned a photo shoot with Allison and a few of her teammates that afternoon at Toronto's Varsity Stadium, where they had trained. Allison told the man that she had to ask her mother first, and the man said he'd call her back. Allison called her mom, Leslie, where she worked at a local advertising agency. They discussed the photo session, that Allison's teammates were supposed to be involved, Allison's planned route, and what time she was to be home. Leslie gave her okay, and Allison hung up to wait for the call back from the man. It sounds legitimate, really. Like, it, looking from this perspective without knowing what happened, she'd been kind of, she's a star athlete. She'd been mentioned in the newspaper. She talked to her mom about it. So they had a plan. Her teammates were supposed yeah. to be involved. It yeah. wasn't even just her by herself. You're right. So, yeah, from that perspective, I would say, yeah, nothing to be worried about. The man called at the appointed time, and Allison said she could go. The man told Allison he would meet her outside the stadium. Allison said goodbye to the housekeeper and was out the door around 12.30 p.m. The stadium was only four subway stops away. She would get onto the Young Street line, go two stops and change trains at Bloor Street, and then head west for two more stops exiting at the George Street station close to the stadium and just a quick jaunt down Bedford Street to her destination. People later recalled seeing Allison near the subway stations and she was recorded by a bank security camera as she sauntered down Bedford Street. But that was the last time anyone saw Allison Parrott. 
on July 25th. Allison was not the kind of girl who missed curfew or neglected to call if she was running late. Leslie told Global News' Crimeby, quote, Allison was very good at not breaking the rules. She might try to push the boundaries, but she would never break the rules, and part of the thing was always to check in, so we knew exactly where she was all the time. So when she didn't come home by 6 p.m., Peter and Leslie Perrot were worried and began calling around and asking the neighbors in the Summerhill Avenue neighborhood whether anyone had seen their daughter. No one had. The Perrots then called police. Right away, cops used the stadium's PA system to broadcast Allison's description to the spectators there who were watching a lacrosse game. So they were on top of it yeah, right away. Yeah, they took care of it right away. By 10 p.m. that night... A group of volunteers and Toronto police were combing the city looking for the missing 11-year-old. Her photo and a description of Allison were aired on City TV's late-night news. Well, they responded quickly. Like I know in other stories you've done, they didn't respond quite so quickly, but this one it seems like they did. The police did right away. Often in the case of adults, they won't respond quickly, but it was an 11-year-old girl. Yeah. And they had had the... Uh, Nicole Morin thing happened only a year prior, so... Ah, uh, they're kind of used to responding quicker now. Yeah, or it was fresher and, in people's minds. Yeah, prioritizing kids, I guess. The next day, the story of Alison Perrot's disappearance was all over the news, on radio, on TV, and in the papers. Hundreds of people showed up to help search for Allison that day. As they went about, the searchers handed out and put up some 20,000 flyers with Allison's description and other details. There was no trace of Allison, and it seemed she had disappeared into thin air. On Sunday afternoon, two days after Allison vanished, Peter and Leslie Perrot held a press conference in their driveway asking for the safe return of their daughter. The crowd of reporters from all the different local and national news outlets turned their cameras and microphones on the Perrots. Peter was the more stoic of the couple, holding up Leslie, who was barefoot as she pled emotionally for any information leading to Allison being brought home to the family. Oh, this poor family, and then having to deal with the press and stuff on top of it. Well... So much pressure and sadness. But at the same time, dealing with the press is probably a good thing, because it's getting attention, at least. Yeah, it's yeah. helping, but still, it's very difficult. That evening, around 6.30 p.m., a pair of boys were playing in the woods near Bloor Street Bridge in Kingsmill Park, which is located on the west bank of the Humber River in Etobicoke. They saw something laying in the brush and went to investigate. It was the naked body of a girl curled into a fetal position. Police were called. As everyone was on the lookout for a missing 11-year-old girl, it was quickly and painfully evident who the boys had discovered. The body was identified as that of Allison Perrot. Metro Police Emergency Task Force units and other police vehicles swept in to secure the area, blocking the roads in and out of the park to preserve evidence and a little girl's dignity. They began the grim process of gathering evidence and trying to piece together what had happened to Allison and what kind of monster could be responsible for such a thing. Uniformed officers were posted around the perimeter, ringed by police tape, to keep the rubberneckers away. Allison had been found just inside Etobicoke, the same community where Nicole Morin had gone missing from a year earlier, and so it was not a stretch that whoever had taken Nicole had also murdered Allison. Mm. Yeah, two in such a short time. Everyone must have been nervous. Allison's arms and legs had been bound and she'd been gagged. It was clear that she'd been brutally sexually assaulted by her attacker before being strangled to death by some kind of ligature. Several vaginal swabs were taken at the scene with the hope of preserving evidence, and more were taken during Allison's post-mortem examination at the forensic lab. A total of seven swabs were taken from Allison's body. There was semen in the swabs, but forensic science had a ways to go in 1986, and there was not enough donor material to properly make an ID against suspects using the ABO blood typing system that was most widely accepted at the time. The samples were stored in a refrigerator for future testing. Just crimes against kids. I don't get it. It's just the worst. Leslie, Peter, and young Callum Perrot were devastated by the news that Allison had been murdered. Leslie mentioned in later interviews that she had to pray for forgiveness for Allison's killer, whoever he was, so she could move forward with her own life. 
As the investigation got underway, as early as July 30th, only three days after Allison's body had been discovered, there were rewards for information leading to her killer's capture and conviction. The story was picked up nationally. According to the Vancouver Sun, quote, the Toronto and Region Crime Stoppers program has offered a reward of up to $2,000 for information leading to the arrest of Allison's killer. The Metropolitan Toronto Board of Police Commissioners expected this week to announce a $10,000 reward for information leading to the killer's arrest and conviction. The J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency, where Allison's mother, Leslie, is vice president, set up a memorial trust in the girl's name to help young, needy children develop their track and field and language skills. Reports of the rewards prompted thousands of calls to two police hotlines. Everybody has their 10 cents worth, Sergeant Peter Banks said. The phones are ringing off the hook. Oh, those hotline tips, phone lines, those must just be just super busy. And then trying to sort through all that information, I just can't even imagine it. Because some people really want to help. Mm-hmm. Some people have really good information. Yeah. And then there's the other ones who are just crazy people. Yeah. Yeah. Or they just want to be part of it somehow. Yeah. And lots of times the tips, I know I worked at, on a tip line for fraud. A lot of them, they're not tips at all. But people think they are tips and they should be taken seriously. It's tough to sort through all that information. Yeah. The police and Allison's family put up more flyers in the hopes of jogging someone's memory about Allison on the day of her murder. The posters that soon became familiar to Torontonians that summer said in big bold letters, Did you see Allison? To the left on the poster was a head-to-toe artist-enhanced photo depiction of Allison in the clothes she had last been wearing, one part of which was a top that had belonged to her dad, Peter. The text of the poster read, Please think back to Friday, July 25th. Allison Perrot, age 11, height 4 foot 10 inches, weight 75 pounds, hair blonde, eyes green, appearance well-groomed, preppy, Last seen wearing emerald green oversized man's t-shirt with collar worn outside shorts. Polo style t-shirt with short sleeves and an emblem on the left chest. Base shorts mid-thigh length. North Star white leather moccasins. And carrying pink roots purse with a navy blue cotton bag with white floral motif on the side. Below were the contact hotline phone numbers for the Toronto police officers handling the investigation. So these posters were everywhere. I haven't heard the word preppy in ages, but yeah, that was uh, in the 80s. She definitely was preppy. I can see her style and everything she wore too. Cops combed the area of the park. They even dragged the river for evidence near the scene, the Humber River. They'd also been dragging the usual suspects in for a hard look at who could have perpetrated such a vicious assault and murder of a sweet, innocent girl like Allison pedophiles, and other deviant sex offenders were rounded up over the next few months and talked to at length by the team of investigators. They also talked to people who knew Allison and trained at the same track facilities as she did. Allison's killer had known she was a runner. Perhaps he had trained close by and had developed his fatal obsession for her while watching her run. In the meantime, on August 1st, 1986, Allison's family held a funeral for their daughter. 800 people attended. From Global News Crime Beat documentary, just two blocks from the stadium, family and friends gathered for Allison's funeral. Outside the church, dozens of police officers in uniform and plain clothes scan the crowd should the killer be among them. End quote. The reward had ballooned to over $50,000, and good. that was within the first week. Yeah, that's good. That same day, the track meet in New Jersey that Allison was supposed to attend was getting underway. Her teammates wore black armbands to commemorate their murdered friend. Help in the investigation was coming from all over, including Scotland Yard and London. Officers there were utilizing a highly successful computer program called Holmes, after Sherlock, of course, to analyze the data and evidence the Toronto police had collected to aid the effort to capture Allison's killer. From the Vancouver Sun on August 5, 1986, quote, from all the information that has come in because of the excellent record of the Toronto Homicide Squad, I'm positive this will be solved, said Inspector Dave Boothby, a leading detective on the case. Of the 57 murders in metropolitan Toronto last year, police solved all but one. Police believed that they would have their murderer within two weeks. Okay, big words. Big words that didn't go 
you know, I was going to ask, but then I thought, I'll wait and see. Allison's murder went unsolved. Over 18 months, some 30,000 reports were written and more than 20,000 witnesses were spoken to and a list of 12 and police had a list of 1,200 suspects. The investigation stalled. The case went cold with no resolution in sight. All the evidentiary paperwork was put into boxes. From the book Dark Paths, Cold Trails by Doug Clark, quote, Eventually, an FBI profiler was brought in. Profiling was a new approach, a sign of desperation, and proof they'd try anything to avenge Allison. But the profile was dismissed as too general to be much help and shelved. The cops gently set Allison aside, one of the many open but inactive cases to be revived and pursued when time and staff budget allowed. Through it all, the police never lost faith they'd catch Allison's killer. They just needed one break, a clue, a tip, a confession, a miracle, end quote. With 1,200 suspects, that's like, oh man, that's a lot of information to go through. Mm-hmm. And their budget was taking them elsewhere. There was another rapist on the prowl in the Toronto area, and that was the Scarborough rapist who ah. turned out to be Paul Bernardo. Yep. So their time and money was pulled elsewhere. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. So what are your thoughts so far, Carol? Just the volume of information they have to go through, it's just overwhelming to try to find, uh, even if they have the right person in 1,200 suspects and all that proof. Yeah. It's a lot. For years, Leslie Perrot played the last phone conversation over and over in her head, trying to come to terms with the guilt she felt, saying it was okay for her daughter to go and have her photo taken. But as you mentioned, it sounded legit. It did to me. That was kind of a thing back then. People like getting their photos taken to be models and stuff. And mm -hmm. plus, like she was in the newspaper. She had um, people wanted to, to see her because she was a track star. So right. I would right. say, yeah, it didn't sound hokey. Nope. In 1996, this is a decade later, Detective Sergeant Vic Matanovic was an investigator on the Toronto cold case squad. He was given the 50 to 60 boxes of information that had been collected in regard to Alison Perrot's murder. Vic was hopeful that somewhere in all those boxes he would be able to find Alison's killer. Maybe the evidence just needed a fresh pair of eyes. Alison had been found in the woods near the Humber River. There were two bridges, one for cars and one for the subway. There was construction on the bridge and the subway bridge was loud too. Her killer, Vic thought, had carefully chosen this area as he'd known it would provide privacy and no one would hear what he did to Allison. The perpetrator had to have known about this place in advance, so he was probably a Toronto resident. Where Allison was found was a straight shot on the subway from near Varsity Stadium, only a nine-minute ride to the closest subway station just above where she was found. Vic Matanovic began looking at suspects that had been spoken to in 1986. Thanks to a tip, one suspect stood out sharply. In 1988, when he had been on mandatory supervision, a man named Francis Carl Roy had moved here to Vancouver. It was two Vancouver police detectives training in the Vi-Class system who had tipped Toronto police to Roy when they were investigating him for the murders of three Vancouver sex workers. Roy had since moved back to Toronto in 1991 after being charged with assault on a Vancouver restaurant owner. I know I said the word Vi-Class and so... Mm -hmm, I don't know what that is. So Vi-Class is the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System and it was developed by the RCMP in 1991. And so what it does is it takes all the information about a particular perpetrator and puts it all in one place. So it came about as a result of the failures in the Clifford Olson case, where wow. all these different jurisdictions had information about Clifford Olson and were not able to share it with each other. Yeah, they couldn't connect it all. Yeah. So this is what Viclass does. And a lot of violent offenders have been profiled this way and it has helped to catch a number of them. Right. Francis Carl Roy 
was a runner who had sometimes trained at the same field as Allison. He was also an amateur photographer. Oh, my God. At the same time of Allison's murder, the 29-year-old was on the run for a parole violation. He had a history of sexual assaults as well. In 1981, Roy had been sentenced to six years for the assault on a 19-year-old Toronto woman in his apartment, and while in jail, he pleaded guilty to the rape of a 14-year-old girl in 1980. According to an Ottawa Citizen article, quote, he drove her to a secluded field in Aurelia, where he smashed her face against a car window. He tied the girl up with his belt and repeatedly sodomized and raped her. He later drove her back to Toronto and threatened to kill her if she told anyone. Oh, my End God. Quote. This guy's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. In September of 1986, when he was questioned, he had brought his lawyer to the interview. He was cleared at the time. He claimed that on the day of Allison's disappearance and murder, he'd been on a 21-mile run through Toronto. He said he had left his home at 9.50 a.m. and had not made it back until 12.13 he claimed he'd cooled down doing some stretching in front of his apartment building. He said that he then got changed and met a friend for lunch and then took transit to work. Something stood out to Detective Matanovich about this interview. Roy was on the run from that other crime, and he said that on that night he remembers coming home to his apartment and his behavior at that time. From Exhibit A, Killer in the Box, Detective Matanovich says, quote, In his statement, he says when he comes home late at the apartment building, he's hiding. He's being cautious. He's looking around. It's black outside. He's being very cautious because he knows the police are after him. Yet why doesn't he do it in the broad daylight? He's doing the stretching there. So, to me, logically, that doesn't make any sense. Roy had also turned himself in for the parole violation on the day that Allison was found. So he'd been in prison while investigators were looking for Allison's killer. Interesting, right? Yeah. And so he's talking about being cautious. So he's being honest about being cautious, but it was because he knows he had just killed somebody. Yeah. Because if he's not being cautious that morning, doing stretches in front of his place, on top of the weird behavior, the route that Roy had been running took him through Kings Mill Park, right past the murder scene, where Allison Perrot's body would be found two evenings later. So he totally knows the area. Yeah, like, well, he was very there. Well, he even, yeah. He even put himself there on the day of the murder. Roy's parole officer had written a report as to why she thought Francis Carl Roy might be a good suspect in Allison Perrot's murder. From Doug Clark's book, Dark Paths, Cold Trails, quote, Among Roy's former parole officer's key facts were that he and Allison had trained at the same athletic club and that he knew track jargon and cameras, giving him the means and opportunity to abduct the young girl. That he had done it before, twice luring young women to an isolated spot to rape and sodomize them. It hadn't stopped there. Hassard pointed out that Roy knew the West End of Toronto, where Allison had lived and was found dead, having attended high school. In fact, Roy and Matanovic had attended the same high school, he worked and he ran about 10 miles a day in the area. Alarmingly, he had scored sadistic to sexual response testing in Kingston Penitentiary. He was diagnosed with an antisocial personality and loved boxing. He could be as happy gauging how many punches it would take to knock out a victim as he was raping and sodomizing. And now she believed likely killing unconscious or bound women and girls with no fear of detection. The parole officer wrote, quote, Roy is a convincing liar and is not threatening in appearance. He is small of stature, has a boyish enthusiasm and a winning smile. He is likable, has the gift of gab, is reasonably articulate and is confident. He also thinks he is a good criminal and would not get caught. In my opinion, the MO is similar to the Parrot case. I know that Roy was previously investigated and cleared, but I think he is worth a second look." End quote. I think so. And plus, it's 10 years later. What else has he been doing in the last 10 years? Well, there's more to it. Okay. Because, well, we've already mentioned that when he, the Vancouver police tipped the Toronto cops to him, they were looking at him for the murders of three, uh, three sex yeah, workers. Yeah, sex workers. Yeah. yeah. 
Vic Matanovich's hunch after reviewing Roy's original interview, his parole officer's thoughts, and Roy's admissions to having been near the crime scene on the day of Allison's murder were not enough to give police what they needed to arrest and charge Roy. But this was a good beginning and some stronger leads than they believed they'd had 10 years earlier. Also, in 1996, DNA profiling was now more accepted science since the trial of the British rapist and murderer Colin Pitchfork in 1987. Pitchfork's conviction of two sexually motivated murders in Leicestershire was the first one in history where the science of DNA fingerprinting was successfully used to put a murderer in prison. An undercover police officer was tasked to follow Roy in the hope of obtaining a DNA sample left by the suspect as he went about his business. The officer got his break at a couple of different bars where he watched Roy smoking. After the suspect left, the officer swept in, grabbed Roy's cigarette butts out of the ashtray that he had been using and secured them. Nice classic. The crime lab went to work analyzing the two cigarette butts provided by the undercover cop. They were able to get a full DNA profile of Francis Carl Roy from both, and both matched the semen samples taken by way of the vaginal swabs collected after Alison Perrot's murder. Francis Carl Roy was arrested and charged with first-degree murder in the death of Alison Perrot, almost 10 years to the day after she had been killed. He pleaded not guilty, but quickly became one of Toronto's most hated men. The news media picked up on the story of Roy's arrest and kept it alive as lawyers prepped for what promised to be one of the most followed trials since Paul Bernardo's. The trial began three years later, in the spring of 1999, and only after a judge ruled that Francis Carl Roy's previous sexual assault convictions were too prejudicial to be entered into evidence, so the Crown would not be allowed to say that this guy was a predator. Also to be withheld was the fact that when Roy was arrested in 1996, he was in possession of a fake ID describing him as a media photographer. Why would they not allow that? Again, they determined that it was too prejudicial. It was a piece of circumstantial evidence that had nothing to do with the particular crime. I could see the first bit, but the uh, fake media tag? Yep. Okay. Regardless, the jurors still had to sit through days of grisly descriptions of the crime, how it had taken between four to five minutes for Allison's killer to strangle her, and further descriptions about the state of Allison's body after the crime. They learned that Roy and Allison had trained at the same places. Roy had known the West End of Toronto well, and he had been familiar with the area in which Allison had been murdered, and even, by his own admissions, to having been in Kings Mill Park that very day. Everyone was curious what Roy's defense team was up to and how they were going to answer the fact that his semen had been found inside Allison Perrot. In a surprise move, Roy's lawyer, Todd Descharmes, read a statement before the DNA experts even testified. It said, quote, The defense admits that Roy is the donor of the DNA profile isolated from the spermatozole fraction from the vaginal swabs taken from the body of Allison Perrot. So they admitted that it was his DNA, even before the, the experts testified. All right. Yeah, so you're... I what, know, to what's next? what? Exactly. Why? How? During his interrogation in 1996, Francis Carl Roy had admitted to being in the park that day, claiming that he had been running there. But where he went next was off the rails. Roy claimed he had not killed Allison Perrot. Okay, I'm ready. He testified in his own defense, saying the same things in court. Allison was already dead when he stumbled across her body, he said, while jogging. He had gone into the wood to urinate, saw Allison's body laying there, and molested it with his hand. He said that since he had masturbated earlier that morning, there was semen left over on his fingers. While the defense admitted it was a deviant and sick act, it did not prove that Roy had murdered Allison Perrot. The attorney for the Crown, Paul McDermott, called Roy's explanation incredibly preposterous. Roy's defense team also argued that Roy was not intelligent enough to have come up with the plan to murder Alison Perrot and invoked a phantom suspect, a white man as opposed to indigenous like Roy, who defense witnesses testified may have been walking with Alison on the day she was killed. What do you think of his defense? It's absurd. Yeah. I don't believe it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so if you're a, you're a juror, you're listening to it and you're thinking, what a load of baloney? Yes. Exactly. 
After a month-long trial, Francis Carl Roy's fate was left in the hands of a jury made up of six women and six men. It took them more than five days to reach a verdict, which is unusual, during which many speculated that there would be a hung jury and Roy might walk free if the Crown didn't want to try him again. The verdict, though, was guilty of first-degree murder, and everyone, including the judge, was relieved. From the Ottawa Citizen on April 14, 1999, quote, Surprisingly, Judge Watt, in thanking the jury for their service, broke his own protocol and praised the verdict, saying it is not his practice to comment on decisions. He said, the jury, quote, arrived at the only verdict that was available to you due to the evidence of the case, end quote. Roy was handed the appropriate sentence, life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. The Ottawa Citizen article continues, quote, As he was led away by police yesterday, Mr. Roy flashed a quick smile to his girlfriend, Janice King, and mother, Rose, who sat holding hands. Earlier, as Mr. Roy walked into the packed courtroom, he smiled to his girlfriend, mouthing the words, I love you, as he was seated in the prisoner's box. Seems very unconcerned for being... Disgusting. uh, The quote continues, After the verdict, dozens of the Peratt's friends' relatives, as well as police officers who had been a part of the initial investigation, lined up inside the courtroom to offer congratulations. Outside the court, Leslie Peratt, Allison's mother, said, We are deeply relieved that the day has come, and we were never in any doubt that the just and right decision would happen. Mrs. Perrot thanked the Crown Attorney and police officers who helped in the investigation, but she took a swipe at the justice system, which failed to protect her daughter from a twice-convicted rapist on parole, end quote. Yeah, I can see that. It, I felt that way too, but she must feel even worse. To help raise awareness and help other children be more aware of predators like Francis Carl Roy, Leslie Perrot was involved in creating the National Stay Alert, Stay Safe campaign in which two rabbits, Bert and Gert, hopped around the city teaching kids about safety. Here's one of the PSAs. Hi, I'm Gert, and this is my brother Bert. Hi, we're here to help you stay alert and stay safe. What a great movie. That was cool. (gasps) I'm late. I'm going to cut through the alley. No, stick with us, Katie. We'd better check this out. Always stick with your buddies and always make sure the folks know where you are. Cool dudes wouldn't go off alone when they don't have to. Stay alert. Stay safe. So there you go. Did you ever see that ad in the 80s or 90s ever? No. No. No, I hadn't seen it either. I don't recall it. Um, well, my mom always had her own uh, kind of stay safe thing. She, her, My mom would always tell my sister and I, don't talk to any weirdos. Okay. That was her thing. We're like, okay. That's super creative, Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie was asked for Global News' crime beat, what part the campaign played in Allison's legacy. She said, quote, for me, being able to help other people is an incredibly important part of Allison's legacy. It's all about love. The whole thing of helping kids be confident and be aware and be alert out in the world again. It's another bit of how Allison lives on. Had she been alive today, Allison Perrot would have turned 46 last September. I just feel like after watching that video and just reading all this stuff, I know that's important for kids to make sure that, you know, they keep themselves safe. But wasn't there anything kind of like, if you know someone that's a real creep, can you please get some help? If you're a real creep, can you please get some help so you don't hurt other people? Yeah. That, there was that, something like that out there instead of like, be careful and be scared, everybody. How about if you're, if you feel like something's wrong with you, please get some help. That actually would be a good campaign. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Well, I don't think anyone thinks that people who are damaged that way or predators in that way are capable of kind of figuring out they're doing something wrong. But there must be someone out there that's like, whoa, I have really bad thoughts and feelings and I do bad things. Can I get some help, please? Right. Like who, if they can kind of figure it out, who, where can they get help so that they kind of also are part of stopping this whole weird process? Are you trying to tell us something, Carol? (laughs) Sorry. Oh no, I've said too much. (laughs) Yeah, but actually, no, like all kidding aside, I, th- I think that is a really good idea. There should be some sort of campaign for help. If you're somebody who has these dark thoughts, call this number and talk to somebody. 
before you do something. It just feels like the responsibility is always on the people that kind of like they're the ones that aren't with um, like, I guess me. I don't know if it's victim is the right word, but they're always it yes, just seems victim is like the right word. You have to be careful all the time because people that can't control themselves are out to get you. Mm-hmm. There should be something else. Yeah. Yep. And that's the case with grownups too. Yes. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot of campaigns for how women can stay safe, but there's not a lot of campaigns for predatory men, how they can not be a predator. I know it sounds weird, but there's got to be something some mm. way because it can't just always be the person that's on the receiving end stuck having to try to fend for themselves, basically, no. or stay with your friends. Yep. Great point. And that's it for this week's case. I'm sad uh, I try about not, Allison. Yeah, I try not to cover too many child murder cases, but this is one that I've kind of had on the back burner for quite some time, and well, since episode 29, Yeah, and uh, it was just time. But also I didn't know about that database with the RCMP, how they connect all the <clears throat> information together like that, and that mm-hmm. did help, so... And I'll put a bunch of links to uh, some more information about ViClass and to uh, the Stay Alert, Stay Safe PSAs. They're quite dated now. They have kind of that, uh, a very 80s look. 90s, 1998? Yeah, 90s. Yeah, yeah I, I guess. A, I felt it was 80s though too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they have a very dated look to them. That's it for this week's case. Let's see if anybody sent us any voicemails this week. And I think that Voicemail? somebody did. As I was writing this week, I saw a few calls come in. So, yeah, people have been calling. Whoa. Actually, a lot of people have call- Yay! called this week. Oh, my gosh. Do you feel popular? Uh, No. Oh, I do. <laughs> I know it's not for me, but still. All right. Let's try this one. Hi. I just wanted to give a call. Um, my name is Haley. I listen in the... I live in Tennessee, actually. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to call you guys and let you know that I absolutely love your podcast. I learned so much about Canadian culture by listening to it. It's always so informative. Um, You guys are so sensitive and um, compassionate about how you guys handle the stories and tell the stories. I also wanted to say that I think Carol is a great addition. I love having a female perspective every now and then, like, the things that she says about the cases, especially when it pertains to women, are really important. And I feel like there are points that um, sometimes a man could miss. No offense. I just, women are great. So I definitely wanted to give Carol a shout out. I hope that you guys are staying happy and healthy during the pandemic. And thank you so much for making the show. Thank you. Well, yeah, why, well, thanks oh a lot. Oh, my gosh. And that's exactly why um, I... I kind of wanted, uh, that's exactly why Carol is on the show to give that perspective. Oh, lucky me. I just thought it was cause I was handy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I try my best. No. Cause I, I knew you that you would bring a little something different. A so. little something, something, a little females. Yeah. There you go. Thank you so much. It's so nice. <laughs> Even when you're a temp, it's nice to hear nice things. So thank you so much. Well, th- thanks so much, Haley. Thank you, Haley. I appreciate it a lot. All right. Let's see who else gave us a call. Oh. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Brett calling from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Um, I just wanted to say I'm a new new listener, but I absolutely love the intro music with, uh, with the goal horns. Um, gets me every time super eerie but comforting at the same time but i just wanted to phone in and tell you how much i liked it um and now you can go piss up a rope or shit in a hat or whatever you guys like your callers to say have a good one thank you for the content (laughs) i love goal horns check Piss up a rope, done. You can do both. You can piss up rope and shit in your toque. So whatever you like, piss it's up rope to you. Is a good Canadian one. <laughs> that <too>. is one. <laughs> yeah, go piss up a rope. Goal horns. That's all I'll think of now. When I hear it. What? Goal horns. 
Well, it's actually the heritage horns here in Vancouver. But yeah, but now it now it does you said sound, it is gold horns. And that's kind of why I wanted to use it because it does sound kind of like gold horns. Also, when during the Olympics, they would play those every time someone, every time a Canadian got a gold medal. So I remember working downtown, and we heard it three times in one afternoon. It was a banner day. Yep. Let's listen to another one. Whoa, okay, there's been gosh. a lot this week. Thanks, you guys. Hey, Mike. Hey, Carol. This is Sarah calling from McGrath, Alberta. This is completely unscripted, so bear with me here. I'll try and keep it short and sweet. But, yeah, I just want to let you know I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I've been listening now probably about two years. I was, I've caught up all the way, but I went back and listened to any I missed, but there wasn't many. And also, I had my first daughter, May 1st of last year. Her name's Farrah May, and she's also listened to every episode with me since I was pregnant with her and since she's been born. So maybe she's your youngest fan. I also wanted to throw out, um, I live in McGrath right now. It's about 20-minute drive from the U.S. border in southern Alberta, uh, just outside of Lesbridge, Alberta, or about three hours south of Calgary. Um, but I just wanted to shout out to Carol, being from the Crow's Nest Pass. I find that kind of cool because my dad's family all grew up there. My dad moved to Lesbridge when he was 13, but now my mom, my sister, and my brother all live out there. And it's always been a fun place to go to visit family and hang out in the mountains. And my dad's grandpa's no-no owned a grocery store there and was on town council and everything. So a lot of the museums and stuff feature a lot of my relatives, and it's kind of cool get to go there feel like a little celebrity but i hope i get to hear this on the podcast and if not i hope you enjoyed it have a great day thank you and bye from mcgrath <laughs> thanks yeah carol uh, had family in uh, coleman in coleman yeah the metropolis of coleman the metropolis of coleman <laughs> wasn't Very it, nice. it was your great great grandma my great grandma yep. yeah she lived there all by herself for a long time and she was uh an interesting person you've mentioned? Yes, she was. Tough. Tough? Tough. And uh, crazy, perhaps? Mm, yeah. I think living out in the boonies all by yourself and having to entertain yourself, it could get to you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Chopping your own wood when you're 88? Yikes. Yeah, well, living in Vancouver kind of gets you when you can't go outside. So. <laughs> we can go outside. Yeah. Just... It's actually nice here. I was looking at other people's weather and, oh boy. But... Sarah, thank you. We got so many voicemails Whoa. this week. We might have to break them up. Yeah, we might have to save some for next week. Uh, let's play just one more. Okay. Hi, this is Carmen from British Columbia, and I just wanted to let you guys know um, how much I enjoy your podcast. Um, a lot of the stuff that you guys cover is not only local, but, you know, just very low-key, so cases that might not even have any media coverage, but you guys should do really awesome research on it, and I appreciate it. Um, I like to listen to you guys when I am commuting to and from school and work, and I like listening to you guys while I do um, tedious office work. So you guys have gotten <laughs> me through those hard days. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I love your podcast so much, and I'm glad that you guys, you know, put your own thoughts and also opinions into it while just giving us all the facts so it was a, it's a perfect mix of both so yeah thank you so much well that was really sweet thanks carmen thank you carmen just for the record i do zero research you said you guys mike does 100 percent research i do zero research <laughs> no well thank you carol <laughs> but still it's Thank you. And I'm glad to get you through those uh, tedious work-related moments. So, Well, Carol knows all about tedious work-related moments. <laughs> she used to go and hang out in the bathroom when uh, she had to go to business meetings at her at her former job. Yeah, not at the job I'm at now. I'm always front and center at those staff meetings, well, which we've be. had zero. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I know what it's like, man. So, yep, hanging in. Hanging in. Thank you. Hanging in is a good thing. All right. Let's move on. It is time for some PayPal. PayPal. I wish we is had like a jingle jingle for the PayPal. Yeah. Ooh, we should set something up. Oh, actually. Let's move on. It is time to do the Patreon shout out. Oh, Patreon. Patreon. 
Not uh, the patriarchy, the patriarchy. No, we do, we're not talking about the patriarchy. The, uh, and I'm just hoping that I'm not part of that because uh, those guys are douche canoes. <laughs> All right. Our first patron is Thomas Gaspar. Thomas. And, and where is Thomas from, Carol? Montero. And where is that? Whew. It is. The plurinational plurinational state of Bolivia. Oh, Bolivia. Bolivia. Well, there you go. And so what does Thomas Gaspar do in Bolivia? He's an erection engineer. What? An erection engineer. Um, He makes erections of buildings. Oh, phew. Phew, that kind of. It's like a civil engineer. Okay, I I was going to say. I think it's not like. I think it is a civil engineer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. He makes tall buildings. And not to mention our friend in Japan again, but her dad is a civil civil engineer. Is he an erection engineer? Uh, no. I'm going to ask her. I'm going to ask her. <laughs> is your dad an erection engineer? <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> erection. <laughs> well, thank you, Thomas. Enjoy Thomas. your erection engineering. I am so glad that it's buildings and not something else. Bigger is better. Okay. <laughs> Next up, we have Stephanie Wood, and Stephanie is from Grand Prairie, Alberta. Hey, nice. Yeah, and what does Stephanie do in Grand Prairie? She is a male specimen courier, which is very hard to do right now because it is chilly where she is. Lots of snow, lots of rain. So male specimen, uh, what do you mean a male you specimen? You know what it means. That's her job. What? It's for medical purposes. Oh, oh, male as an M-A-L-E. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> it's medical. It's, it's medical. for science. Well, thanks, Stephanie Wood. Her last name is Wood. <laughs> That's worked out perfectly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Male, M-A-L-E, specimen courier. Stephanie Wood. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Thank you for your service, Stephanie. Oh, boy. Next, we have Lizzie Perry. And Lizzie is from Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. We've got a, a few Albertans here. Oh my gosh, you poor freezing people. Yes. What does Lizzie do in Fort Saskatchewan? She is a vision clearance engineer. A vision clearance engineer. What does that Also known as, in layman's terms, the windshield replacer. Oh, Oh, so she's like a windshield replacement technician. Yes, exactly. Oh, but I like the other... Thing the that, vision clearance engineer? Yeah, I like yeah. the name. Well, she does too. She had to work hard to get that job. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but lots of people ask, what does that mean? So then she has to tell them I replace windshields. Well, there's lots of chipped windshields in Alberta. Chipped and cracked, yeah. and it's crazy. Well, thanks, Lizzie. Thanks, Lizzie. Thank you for your service. That's Chip crazy. Chip windshields. Chip windshields. I know, it's brutal. Next up, we have from Kelowna, British Columbia, Janelle Steele, Kelowna. Kelowna. And and what does Janelle do up there in Kelowna? Human resources specialist. So she's an HR person. Okay. In Kelowna. There's a lot of IT companies up there that need the HRs. Sure. Ah. Well, there you go. She probably really is an HR. Who knows? Oh, Janelle, did I nail it? Maybe. I we hope have, so. We have actually nailed people's jobs before, which is weird. Total dumb luck. Dumb, yeah. Dumb luck. Heavy on the dumb. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, <laughs> next, we have Nadia Gilchrist. And Nadia has uh, opted out of a shipping address. Oh. Which means that we don't know where she lives. So let's see. Let's find out where she lives. Where does she live, Carol? In Wangles, Germany. Wangles? In Wangles. What? what? Wangles. Well, it has the it has the word wang in it, so I'm good with that. <laughs> good with it, too. Yeah, so what does Nadia Gilchrist do in Wangles, Germany? She's the tour organizer for Rammstein. Oh, wow. I know. We watched the Rammstein video last night on uh, the Prime video. Nadia, first of all, I'm totally jealous of your job organizing the Rammsteins. Yep. Uh, Great band. Um, Some disturbing content in that one. Very disturbing content at the end. Was it the end or was it the middle? That was a really long concert. Yeah. You're getting your money's worth there. But, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think we should spoil it. Just know, what did I just watch? Yeah, exactly. This is a concert with a gazillion people. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And how are you drinking from that? (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch that. Yeah, don't put that away. Yeah, well, I guess not. It seemed like everybody was game for it. Yep, everybody was into it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy frightening yes it was very very but still would i go a hundred percent yeah totally i would go would i be in the front row no absolutely not nope (laughs) not in the splash zone not in a million years uh all right here we have uh let's so that's it for patreon thank you for your patronage it really really helps us out we're we are surviving because of you really we are we are surviving and our donut money donors also help as well donuts so this this week we had a donut money donor at paypal and her name is keely cooper keely and keely That's a good name keely is from bellevue washington really just right down there. the street yeah we can't go visit because Aww. this stupid pandemic and keely says hey mike take a crap in your cap from too much timmy's all and right the, and a whole bunch of donut emojis nice <laughs> well, keely I, I want to go to jalapenos with you when we can, when the borders open, she might not know where Jalapenos is because she's from Bellevue, not Bellingham. But still, everyone must know where Jalapenos is. <laughs> Maybe I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, come up to Bellingham and go to Jalapenos with us, Keely. That we'll would meet be fun. you halfway, and then Trader Joe's after. It's my dream day. It's, <laughs> and then we can go to Fred Meyer's so I can buy some Diet Cherry Coke. Mike loves Fred Meyer's. I do. Ridiculous. I know we can't help ourselves. Um, so what does Keeley do in Bellevue, Washington? She's a part-time package handler. <laughs> I was gonna I'm gonna be cheeky and say whose packages does she handle? So many. Oh dear. But in a good way. And also during the pandemic, she's also working hard. Uh <laughs> part-time. There's lots of packages to be packaging. Packages to be handled? Yes. Oh Aww. boy. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your service, Thank Keely. Thank you for your service, Keely. Oh, my goodness. That's it for a Patreon and PayPal this week. Now, someone mentioned that they weren't happy that I haven't done any voices. <gasps> voices. So I think I should just turn the end of the show over to Werner Herzog. Oh, my God. It's the greatest day of my life. Yeah, Werner's in the studio with us. Wow, when did you get here? Hello, Carol. Oh, my God. I am going to help with the end of the show. <gasps> okay, I'm listening. Let me see the baby. <laughs> I want to see the baby. I want to see the baby. Oh, thank you, Werner. So what I want to say is thank you to all the patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to help keep Dark Poutine going, you can look into the abyss. Uh, no, Herner, Werner. <laughs> We're not talking about that. What do you mean, Mike? It is crazy. Give him a little shove. Give him a little shove. No, uh, Dark Poutine, if if you want to donate to Dark Poutine, you do it at patreon.com slash dark poutine, or for one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. I thought you would call it PayPal again, because you have done that before. You're a silly little man. And I don't think that you should ever listen to this tape, ever. (laughs) Never listen to it again. Do not ever. Do you want me to talk about where to find the show? Yes. Yes. Yeah, please. Please. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it means a lot to us. If you did, you can easily find us on iTunes, Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Well, that's great, Werner. Do you know what our website address is? Yes, it's darkpoutine.com, and you can find show notes and other cool stuff there. Can you find it there? I don't know. I haven't looked. Verna! Well, I find this show very boring. <laughs> oh, no. What? Hang on. Yeah, get out of here, hey. Warner. No, no, no. Come back. We would never. Okay. You, you saw the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the baby. <laughs> Anyway, take time to give Dark Poutine a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, over to you, Werner. Don't forget to be a good egg. 
And not a bad apple. Yeah! <laughs> Thank you! Goodbye! Good night! Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.